Good morning, everybody. My name's Amy Foster, and it's my privilege to be part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it's just a joy to be here with you this morning. I'll tell you what I'm thankful for. It's October 31st, and I'm standing up here teaching, and all I'm seeing are your beautiful faces. There are no scary costumes out there. So thank you for, for looking beautiful this morning. I appreciate it. Um, I just want you to wave your hands if you like horror movies. How many of you like those movies? It's okay. Okay, we've got a few you over here. Okay, I'm just going to tell you I don't like them. I went along when I was in high school because my friends wanted to go see them, um, and I have teenagers right now. One of my boys likes them, so I've had an opportunity to revisit them lately, and I'm here to tell you they haven't changed a bit. They follow the exact same formula they always follow. There's always some zombie or some deranged person out there doing terrible things, and then there's always this unsuspecting, naive, clueless person who hears a strange noise and decides to walk down a dark hallway and see what's there. You know this moment, don't you? And the movie director makes it take 10 minutes for them to take 10 steps. And all your tension is building, and everybody in the theater is ready to scream, don't go there, don't open the door, it's all horror on the other side. That's how it always plays out. They always open the door, and all kinds of terrible things ensue. Well, when I studied this passage, I kept thinking it reminds me of a horror story. Um, the text today begins at the beginning of Passion Week. It's a unique time in history when Jesus is publicly presenting himself as the Messiah. And it might appear that the forces of evil are completely in control and that they're all conspiring to rush Jesus to the cross. But we know that sovereign God was in control of every moment of that week. We know that sovereign God had declared exactly how things would play out, that the prophets had spoken, and that Jesus himself had already declared how things were going to play out. And so what we see in these passages is Jesus declaring himself as Messiah and declaring himself as royalty on his terms and in his timing. Prior to this time, um, Jesus didn't want his, his title, his royalty, to be publicly displayed. He didn't want it to be announced. Just one example, Mark 124, um, when Jesus was healing people, oftentimes the demon-possessed people, the demons in them would recognize who Jesus was. Take a look at your verse sheet. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. So we definitely see this pattern earlier in his ministry when Jesus did not want that proclaimed. He's doing miracles and he's teaching, but he's not making that public proclamation. But now everything has changed. Now this week, he's proclaiming it, he's encouraging it, and he's allowing it. And over and over again in this text, we're going to see the religious leaders trying to move things forward ahead of God's time frame, trying to rush Jesus to judgment, trying to force him to a position where he will say the words that they need for them to rush him to the cross and to death. But God has orchestrated the events of this week, and that's not supposed to happen until Friday, and Jesus isn't supposed to rise from the grave until Sunday. So we see Jesus masterfully responding to their questions and pacing the timing exactly so that his messiahship will be declared exactly according to God's plan. Jesus has told his disciples numerous times what's going to happen 
happen, but they haven't heard yet with any kind of understanding. But Jesus understands. Whenever the text says Jesus turned towards Jerusalem, Jesus set his heart towards Jerusalem, Jesus knew what waited for him at Jerusalem. And Jesus knew when he turned towards Jerusalem, he was always turning towards the cross. And he was going there willingly, and it wasn't the forces of evil that were moving him there. Um, in Luke 9:52, that's just one example. Jesus says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Then in Luke 18:31, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And then our text for today in Luke 19, 29, it begins with, after Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So I love this process of whenever I read the words, Jesus going to Jerusalem, for me, that means Jesus going to the cross. Jerusalem means the cross. Okay, well, we're going to start today. This, um, the text begins on Monday of Holy Week. Holy Week is the week that Jesus goes into Jerusalem and presents himself as Messiah. A number of things happen. On Friday, he'll be condemned and put on the cross to die. He'll be sealed up in a tomb, and we know how it ends on Sunday morning. So I think it's really important as we study this passage to put it in the, the time frame and the right context. So this is Monday, and he is entering Jerusalem and declaring himself Messiah, and then he's going to enter the temple where he will face the fiercest opposition, and all the people who are opposing him are there, and there he too will declare himself Messiah. But you'll, if you'll read carefully, you'll see he never gives them the exact words that they need to rush him to the cross because he is in control of everything and as Jesus makes this public declaration the people respond and the people respond by recognizing and declaring Jesus as Messiah they recognize his authority and they recognize his royalty so read with me in Luke 19 we're going to begin in verse 29 <clears throat> and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Okay, we see Jesus coming in from the east. Bethpage is a little community east of Jerusalem. And Jesus sends his disciples on ahead to go in and get a colt. Um, he knows exactly what he needs to enter the city of Jerusalem, and he knows exactly how that need is going to be provided for. We really see both his authority and his omniscience in this experience. Up to this point, Jesus has been traveling on foot, and that was common and that was customary. But he's not going to enter Jerusalem on foot. He's going to enter Jerusalem riding a colt, the foal of the donkey, and everyone would understand that. 
everyone would understand. There were scriptures that were totally accepted and understood to be scriptures that talked about the Messiah that God was sending. And this is an example of that right now. Um, the people had these scriptures to, to remind them of how thankful and how joyful it would be when God would send his Messiah. And in particular, Zechariah 9.9 is one that would have significant meaning to them right there. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, we see in those verses and the way it plays out, all of Jesus' followers recognized his royalty and they recognized his authority. This was a well-known prophecy of how the Messiah was going to enter Jerusalem and the people were expecting the kingdom of God to arrive in Jerusalem this week and they were expecting the kingdom to arrive with Jesus. They'd been hearing about it. They'd been seeing his miracles. That was what they thought was going to happen. So his disciples spread their cloaks on the, don on the foal and put Jesus up and as he rides that donkey in, all the people spontaneously take their cloaks off and put them on the road and spread them out before him. This was a sign of respect and it was a sign of honor and it was reserved for royalty. This was the way a king would enter the city and this was the way a Messiah was prophesied to enter Jerusalem. So it's a dramatic moment. Jesus begins down the hill on the Mount of Olives and the crowd cannot contain themselves. They erupt into just enthusiastic and spontaneous worship and I love the thought that this was not rehearsed. This was not scripted. They all in unison together go into this blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, they can burst into this in unison because they know this psalm. This is accepted scripture. This is totally trusted and believed to be scripture that's talking about the Messiah that God would send. And it's from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. Thanking God in advance for sending Messiah. It was a psalm that they would routinely sing during the Passover week there in Jerusalem. The text tells us the whole crowd is praising Jesus because of the miracles. I think that's really interesting. In the crowd, we have some true disciples who are going to stay faithful to Jesus to the end. And we also have some temporary disciples. And they are praising Jesus. They are recognizing him as Messiah. They are recognizing his authority because he can perform miracles. And here's what we know about the miracles that he's performed. They're visible. They're immediate, they're obvious, they address an immediate physical need, okay? But when things become a little unclear later on and a little less obvious, we know that many in this crowd will fall away. Many of these temporary disciples are not going to continue to put their faith and their hope in Jesus when he's not meeting an immediate and an obvious need. And I think that's a really important message for us to consider just the role of the true disciple and the role of the temporary disciple there. But the thing that's here, clear here, both of them, everyone recognizes Jesus as Messiah. They recognize his authority, his majesty, and his royalty. But there's always an opposition, and the opposition is there in the crowd today. The Pharisees are offended. They think this is undeserved praise. Listen to how they answer Jesus in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
Now, there are many references in the scripture where truth is so profound and truth is so obvious that this poetic language is used that nature is going to cry out and proclaim the truth. We see that a lot in the Psalms. I haven't checked, but I think the literary term there is personification. Truth is going to be so obvious that the mountains, the hills, the streams, everything is going to cry out. That's really what Jesus is talking about. A great example is Psalm 96 on your verse sheet, beginning in verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. That's a great example of creation recognizing the Messiah coming to judge the earth. And we'll actually see um, in the next few chapters, we will see creation responding literally to a truth that can't be ignored. When Jesus dies on the cross, creation responds, the earth goes dark, the sunlight fades, the ground shakes. All right, all of history has pointed to this moment when Jesus would declare himself Messiah. And Jesus states the obvious, if the people didn't say it, the rocks would. This has, is a pivotal moment in history, and Jesus is going to be presented as Messiah either through the people or through the creation. But unfortunately, the leaders of Israel have already made a decision about accepting Jesus as Messiah, and they are rejecting him. We're going to look at this significant passage where over and over and over again, they're warned, don't go there, don't go there, just like we see in the horror movie. They're walking down a long hallway that's going to lead them to rejecting the Messiah. All right, begin reading with me in verse 41. <clears throat> and as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It says Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Another um, translation, the Amplified Bible says Jesus wailed. It was audible remorse, excuse me, not remorse, it was audible sorrow, profound sorrow. Whenever we see Jesus weeping, we also see God's sorrow. Remember, Jesus is the exact um, representation of his father. So when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, it's God's divine compassion. His heart is broken because Israel is rejecting Jesus. The first time we see Jesus weep over the city in Jerusalem, you read this passage in your homework. It's back in chapter 13. And in that passage, Jesus shows his heart and his desire for Jerusalem. He describes the peace he wanted to offer them, and he uses that illustration of, I wanted to gather you together under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks and it's an illustration of mercy and compassion and protection and grace and that was God's desire that was what he wanted to offer all of his people but the leaders of Israel have rejected that offer and they've rejected the Messiah 
And as a result, judgment will come. God is righteous and he's holy. And he has to be a God of justice. And that means judgment always is the response to our rejecting Jesus. But I don't think we can ever forget his divine compassion. And that's why we see Jesus weeping there. Okay, we've got a pattern that plays out there. And it's a pattern that continues even today. So I want to spend a little time on it. It's a pattern of peace is offered but people don't recognize it, and judgment follows. That's exactly what's happened, and we see that in these two passages where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. First, let's start with peace was available. Now, we think of peace as, oh, I'm so relaxed, or maybe we think of it as, hmm. Okay, that's not the peace that they're describing here. The peace that they're describing here is very specific, and it means freedom from all the distresses that are experienced as a result of sin. Okay, the peace that Jesus was offering was a very specific peace, and it was freedom from the consequences of sin. And we know, and they knew, the consequences of sin, that's separation from God. Separation from this relationship with a holy and just God. It's spiritual death. Okay, that's the peace that Jesus was offering them. Freedom from that separation. Freedom from God's judgment. Freedom from eternal spiritual death. And then this was the most interesting thing. It says that they did not recognize it. They didn't recognize it. I want to give you a definition of did not recognize that comes from the Amplified Bible. And it's long, so stick with me. We're going to unpack it a little bit. It's really insightful. Did not recognize means did not come progressively to recognize and know and understand from observation and experience this time of God coming to you. All right? So that's saying by observation and by experience, there should have been a progressive recognition. This was God offering you salvation. I think that's so interesting. You remember Satan tempted Jesus and said, Let, let's put you up at the top of the temple and let you declare yourself and jump off that way in a grand thing. That was never God's expectation that Jesus would be presented that way and that would lead us to belief. God's expectation was this progressive awakening, progressive recognition that Jesus was there offering you salvation. But because they don't recognize, judgment always follows. Again, very consistent theme throughout the scriptures and in our lives today. Jesus warns unbelief will always result in judgment. And he goes on to prophesy a day when the nation of Israel will be judged and will be totally defeated by her enemies. This wasn't a distant prophecy. This was a prophecy that was fulfilled in less than 40 years. If you know your history, by 70 AD, the Roman rulers were tired of Israel and all their little uprisings and revolts, and they surrounded the wall of the city and was the custom in, in battles. They built embankments against the city walls. They cut off all the food supply. They didn't let people go in and out. They besieged that city for months until they completely destroyed Israel in 70 AD. So that was a prophecy that was very clear and very certain. What Jesus is saying is clear. I am the Messiah and you need to accept me on my terms. Because when Jerusalem rejects Jesus, their response is Jesus rejects Jerusalem. And it's the same for us. 
You know, a few years ago, I had the neatest opportunity. I took the trip of a lifetime. Um, I was able to travel to Israel with Pastor Doug Cecil and a group from Christ Chapel, a wonderful trip. And we spent many days um, traveling and going, walking the places Jesus walked, um, seeing the places where he ministered. And it was spectacular. The highlight of the trip for me was absolutely around day six when we finally came into Jerusalem. We came into Jerusalem the same way Jesus did, from the east. We came down the hill, and Pastor Doug was reading, The Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was an overwhelming moment. We stopped at a little spot on the side of the hill where you could see a great view in front of you, and you could see the entire city of Jerusalem. You could see the old ancient gate. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. The wall around the city, you can see it. You see the site where the temple used to be, and it's very prominent, but it's not a temple anymore. It's the Dome of the Rock. It's a holy Muslim site, and you stand and you look at that. And uh, Pastor Doug stood there with us looking on all of that, and he read this passage of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem because they didn't recognize their Savior. When he finished, there's a beautiful little church there. Everybody went inside to see the church. I stayed outside for my, just to be by myself and soak it all in for a few minutes and contemplate it. And after a couple of minutes, I heard something I had never heard before. I couldn't figure out if it was chanting or wailing or singing, but it was kind of coming from all around me. And in some places, it was amplified over speakers. And in a few seconds, I recognized something I'd never heard before. It was the Muslim call to prayer. And I would hear it multiple times over the next few days in Jerusalem. And I sat there and thought, hundreds, maybe thousands of voices around me, all displaying obedience and faithfulness and calling out to a God who isn't the God of Israel. And dare I say, calling out to a God who doesn't hear and a God who isn't real, and a God who doesn't offer peace. And I stood there looking at Jerusalem, and my eyes filled with tears, and I thought, and today we still don't recognize Jesus even right here in his city. Um, in Jesus' city in Jerusalem, he was replaced with a different kind of an idea, and today he's been replaced with a different idea, and it's what we do when we reject God. We redefine him, and we come up with a new idea. Today, we have the same thing. We have people who reject Jesus outright and choose something else, and we have people who sort of reject him and also redefine him. They place their faith in a Jesus who will deliver them from the consequences of sin and also make their dreams come true. They write in things and they define the Messiah in a new and unique way. And maybe you're thinking, oh, we don't really do that. We do. And it happens all the time. And I want us to be careful to remember Jesus has defined himself as Messiah and we shouldn't add to that. Listen to some of these things I've heard people say to me. I believe in a loving Jesus who wouldn't send anyone to hell. I believe in a Jesus who's going to give me all the desires of my heart soon. After all, he put those desires here, so I'm expecting him to fulfill them. I believe in a Jesus who's going to shower me with blessing. He's going to make me financially successful because his word says he wants to show me favor. 
I believe in a Jesus who's my counselor and my friend, and he'll accept me even if I'm pursuing sinful things because he wants me to be happy. We redefine Jesus and Messiah right here in the church. And they've redefined Jesus there in Jerusalem. And back in Jesus' day, they had a different version. Um, But for all of us, the message is the same. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's not the Jesus that God has told us that he is. He has told us who he is, and he's not ever promised that he would be the Messiah that would make our worldly dreams come true. He's not ever promised he would be a Messiah who would protect us from the flawed things that happen in a flawed world. He's told us he's the Messiah who will bring us peace with God. That's who he is. Well, just like we make up our own version today, the leaders of Israel made up their own version. Jesus was going to be a magnificent and a powerful political leader. He was going to free Israel from all this outside oppression, other nations ruling over them. I think the religious leaders probably thought he was going to leave them alone and let them have their position of power also. He was going to be great and mighty, but he was going to be a man. He was going to be a human man. That was their version of Messiah, and that version was too small. God expects the same thing from us today that he expected from from them. He expects us to come to a place where we recognize peace standing in front of us. He expects us to recognize Jesus. A true disciple should know God's word and recognize his grace toward us. We shouldn't ask for special signs or special experiences with God. It's a great opportunity there. Let's move on. That was Monday of Holy Week. On Tuesday of Holy Week, the story continues. Begin reading with me in verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. All right, we see this process now of the leaders of Israel beginning to totally outright reject Jesus as Messiah. What do we see Jesus doing? Just like he set his feet on the path to Jerusalem, now he sets his feet on a path to the temple. The home of the opposition, the most dangerous place in the world for him to go where all the religious leaders are, that's where he goes, and he doesn't go in quietly. The first thing he does is he displays his authority, he cleanses the temple. He's offended when he gets there because God's purpose for the house of God has so been perverted and distorted. He quotes Isaiah 56, this is supposed to be a house of prayers, you've turned it into a den of robbers, and here's the kind of commerce that was going on there they had all kinds of rules and regulations and people needed to purchase things and they needed to have money but they only accepted a certain type of currency but they would gladly exchange your currency for you for a fee right there in the temple and then God's ideal that you would bring an offering from your own flocks and offer it oh you don't need to bother yourself by bringing your own offering we'll gladly sell you one here from ours for a small profit so over and over again they're distorting god's purposes in god's temple and jesus acts with authority like a holy high priest as he cleanses the temple and then he teaches the people he goes on teaching for several days and the whole time he's teaching there's two groups of people watching there's the opposition they're described as the chief priests 
the teachers of the law and the prominent leaders among the people. Okay, you need to know that Israel was governed by a group called the Sanhedrin, very much like our Supreme Court today. The Sanhedrin was made up of three groups, chief priests, teachers of the law, and prominent leaders of the people. So when you see those three groups there watching Jesus, it's like an official inquiry. They have sent their representatives out to watch him, and they're looking for an opportunity to distort his words and to rush him to condemnation. The text says very clearly they're trying to kill them, but they can't because of the people, the other group that's there. Oftentimes in here, it's going to use the language when they're describing these people um, conspired together or talked it over among themselves. And I think we lose a little bit in the translation. That makes it sound like they were considering their options. They were still trying to decide what they were going to do about Jesus. That's not what this means at all. It means they were already persuaded. They had already determined to reject Jesus as Messiah. They're pondering was about how they were going to do it. So all through this lesson, we're going to see this conspiring, talking it over among themselves. And you need to know when you see that, they're not considering if what Jesus is saying is true. They're considering how are we going to rush him to death. We have already decided. Okay, so the oppositions they're watching, the people are also there watching. And I loved the language used here. It says they're hanging on his words. thought that was beautiful. One translation says stuck right by him. All through the book of Luke, we have this description of Jesus as the one who has sent to seek and to save the lost. So why would he storm right into the temple where the opposition lives? Because the lost are there. The seekers are there. And Jesus goes in and he takes another opportunity because God's heart is that everyone would be restored to peace and to a relationship with him. So we see Jesus blasting into the temple and declaring the good news. It says he's declaring the gospel. Now keep in mind, he hasn't died on the cross yet. So what does good news mean? It's that good news of the kingdom of God is here. You're invited to live in God's kingdom, to be his people under his rule. That's what he was offering the people. A great application, I thought, there, when the people stick right by God, when the people hang on his every word, the opposition has no power. The opposition has no opportunity when we let Jesus define himself and we hang on his very words. Okay. Next Wednesday of Holy Week, again, we see him teaching and preaching the gospel. And then the religious leaders begin their assault. And they begin a series of questions. And again, the questions are not motivated by a desire for truth. They're trying to get the words they need to condemn him and put him quickly on the cross. But Jesus knows the timing and he knows when that's supposed to happen and he will not give them the words they need until it's time. So you need to come back over the next couple of weeks because there is going to be a moment when Jesus tells them the words they've been asking for. There's your teaser, okay? Um, in chapter 20, verse 2, they start with this first question. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Okay, so they're asking, who are you? Are you a prophet? Are you a priest? Are you a king? Who are you and who sent you? Who has given you this authority? Now, for all of us, as we've read through the book of Luke, we're thinking that question has been asked and answered already. The people have just recognized and declared 
He's the king. He's the Messiah sent from God. It's obvious to everyone, his authority, the power he's put on display. Everyone else has recognized it, and they're still asking that question. Just a few examples on your verse sheet, Luke 4, 36. And this is earlier. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. Jesus commands evil spirits and he heals people. Mark 1.22, I thought this was really interesting. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the teachers of the law. That's kind of a sting, isn't it? Verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. All through his public ministry, Jesus' authority and his power has been on display, and it has been plain for all to see, and God expected them to recognize it. He expected them to know his words that prophesied the Messiah, and he expected them to come to a place where they saw God's word living out in front of them. Well, Jesus won't answer that question for them right now. Instead, he uses a common rabbinical teaching method. He asks them a question. And again, it's a question that will take them to truth. He says, John's baptism, talking about John the Baptist here, was that from heaven or from men? Um, And he's really talking about the baptizing work of John, the ministry of John the Baptist. And so he's asking the same question. Well, who gave John his authority? The leaders do this. We know what that means. They're conspiring together, and they decide we better not answer this question, and here's why they shouldn't answer it. John was widely accepted by all the people as a prophet sent from God. The people completely believed that and accepted it, and the people understood John had baptized Jesus. That was part of John's baptizing work. And back in Luke 2, 22, when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. I want you to remember those words, you are my son whom I love. Over and over again, these questions are, by whose authority are you doing this work? And over and over again, the message is, he is God's son whom God loves, okay? All these questions about Jesus' authority, they are moot if John was actually a true prophet. If John's baptism of Jesus was from God, then all these questions don't matter a bit. If the religious leaders deny the validity, the legitimacy of one of their own prophets, that's breaking their law. And do you know what the penalty for that is? They'll be stoned to death. So they are in a tough spot. If they deny that John was a true prophet with authority from God, the people will stone them. So you could say they're between a rock and a hard place right now, aren't they? (laughs) Couldn't let that one go. All right, they don't give an answer because the answer won't accomplish their purposes. And so Jesus, in response, refuses to answer the question also. Instead, he tells a parable. And we all know parables answer questions, don't they? Remember that the question is about Jesus' authority. As we read this parable, he's giving them the answer to that question. Read this parable with me. It's Luke 20, beginning in verse 9. 
Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Have you heard that before? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Okay, a great parable. Um, A man planting a vineyard and leaving it to farmers, that would be crystal clear to everyone who heard the meaning there. Isaiah 5, you read that in your uh, homework. That's a um, well-known song of the vineyard. Um, Recognized all through scripture, God refers to Israel as his vineyard. Always look at Psalm 80, 8 through 9. They're talking about God. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You, you cleared the ground for it, and it took root, and it filled the land. Israel was the vine that God had planted in the Holy Land, and it had flourished and become God's vineyard. And God expects his vineyard to produce good fruit. He leaves it in the hands of the tenants, the religious leaders, who are supposed to help Israel produce fruit. The same way Israel had a history of um, rejecting the prophets, imprisoning them, beating them, and killing them. That's what happens to the tenants in the story in the same way, the, uh, the servants who come looking for the fruit. So the owner says, I will send my son whom I love. They can't miss the meaning here when they keep asking him, by whose authority are you doing these things? And he says, I will send my son whom I love. The evil farmers do this. They're conspiring together to get rid of the sun and control the vineyard themselves, and that's what they do. And Jesus asked the question, what then should the owner of this vineyard do? What should he do? He will come and kill the tenants, and he will give the inheritance to others. The people respond. Um, This is definitely a message of judgment. Judgment always follows rejecting Jesus all the time. Um, This is also a prophetic statement. It's the second prophetic statement we have against Israel. It's a little bit different. It's not talking about their national destruction. It's talking about their privileged relationship with God. And the inheritance being given to someone else means we're going to offer the Gentiles a place in the kingdom of God now. And nationally, politically, the Gentiles are going to start ruling over you now. Okay. All along, God's plan was to save the world through his son. 
So rejecting the Son was the same thing as rejecting God. That's true today on your verse sheets, John 3:18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. All right, that is an interesting response they have to the parable. When we read, may it never be, that sort of sounds like, oh, may it never be, could it be? That's not what the words mean. The words there mean, it will never be. This was the defining moment. This was the outright rejection. When the leaders of Israel say, it will never be, they're saying, you are not God's son, you are not acting in his authority, and his inheritance will never be taken from Israel. It was profound, blatant rejection, followed by the most scary thing I've ever read in the scripture. It says Jesus looked right at them. I can't imagine that, um, to boldly reject Christ. And Jesus turns and looks right at you and says, then what does this mean? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Again, he's referring to the Psalms. These were widely accepted scriptures. The Israelites knew them. This comes from Psalm 118. Again, it's a psalm that's describing the Messiah. It's a prophetic psalm. Theologians believe that term capstone that we see in this translation. Cornerstone is another term that that would also work there and uh, give the same meaning. Jesus likes to talk in terms that people understand. When builders build with stones, the way they build the walls of Jerusalem, they sort through the stones and they throw out those that don't fit. They reject them and they discard them. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying his rejection by the builders of the Jewish political system will have a significant penalty and judgment attached to it. It's that warning cry. It's that don't go there. Don't go there. What you're about to do is going to have dreadful consequences. He's the most important figure in the kingdom that God is building. He's the capstone, the cornerstone, and they are rejecting him and throwing him out. It tells us that it gets their attention. They understood this parable was spoken against them, and they immediately look for a way to arrest him over and over and over again, trying to get him to the cross faster. Um, It's reckless, and it's bold, and it's dangerous, and when I read it, I just keep thinking, why would they do that? Why would they do that? And I'm reminded of John 3:19, And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's why they do it. So we see, we read on, we see the religious leaders resorting to more desperate tactics. They try two more rounds of questioning. They bring in spies who ask the question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? This is a loaded and divisive question. Um, Again, it's a question about authority. Should we submit to Caesar, to Rome's authority? Um, politically charged and divisive, and whatever answer he gave, somebody was going to be mad about it. So Jesus asked them a question, whose image is on the coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. Jesus answers them, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. He's saying something clear about authority. He's saying in Caesar's realm, you must obey Caesar. By the same principle, in God's realm, you must obey God. And what does God say? This is my son. This is my son. 
All right, that questioning doesn't go as they had expected, so the spies stop. Another group comes in with a round of questioning. This is kind of funny because it's the Sadducees, and they're asking a really foolish question about the resurrection. Here's the interesting thing you need to know. Pharisees and Sadducees were kind of opposing groups, and they argued about a lot of things. They interpreted Scripture differently. The Sadducees don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe in angels, and they don't believe in the resurrection. So why are they coming to Jesus asking this ridiculous question about the resurrection? They're not looking for truth. This isn't a question that they want to learn from. They're looking for an opportunity to make Jesus look foolish and to rush him to judgment. We don't have time to read that text, but it's this extreme hypothetical. Um, A woman's husband dies, so she marries the brother. The brother dies, so she marries the next brother. And it goes on to describe the ridiculous circumstances of a woman dying and marrying a string of seven brothers, none of which produce an heir, in the resurrection Whose wife will she be? It's a crazy question. Jesus doesn't condescend to answer that silly question. Instead, he teaches them a little bit about the resurrection. Read with me in verse 34, very quickly, his response. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Okay, Jesus is explaining two things here. Once, First, he's saying your question about marriage and the resurrection is silly. There's no marriage in the resurrection. You don't expect it to be the same way there that it is here. He's saying people are eternal because there's no death. There's no need to reproduce children, so there's no marriage. So that's the first message he wants to send them. People are eternal. You need to know that. The second question he's addressing, does the resurrection really exist? He tells them that it does, and he uses their own well-known scripture. He quotes from Exodus 3, the famous experience where Moses encounters the burning bush. And from the burning bush, God speaks, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew their history. They knew their Bible. They knew that when God said that to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been long dead many, many years. And God is speaking in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is using this to prove that all people are eternal. There is a resurrection, and you live out the resurrection either united with God or apart from him. They stop their questions. They're afraid to ask anymore. So we've kind of had this little battle between Jesus and the opposition right now, the powerful leaders, and Jesus has proven his authority once again. He's proven his knowledge of the word of God, and he's proven his skill, and they stop questioning. And then Jesus goes on the offensive, and then Jesus says, now let me ask you a question. This is a great moment. He turns it all around, and he asks an important question. It's not a trick, and it's not a deception. It's a question that will expose an important truth that they need to know. Read with me, beginning in verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Okay, kind of confusing language. We're just going to go through it slowly here. Son of David, that was the most common term that was used to describe the Messiah, the king that God was going to send to deliver Israel. So all the people understood the promise was made to David, and it was a prophecy that the, the king of Israel would always be a descendant of David. So they used that expression, um, son of David, to describe the Messiah. Israel was expecting that. They were expecting this Messiah to be a man, a man, a man from David's offspring. But that view of Messiah is too small, and that's what Jesus is helping them understand. Again, he quotes their familiar scriptures. He quotes Psalm 110, which is where uh, David is... Um, is describing the Messiah. David is speaking about the Messiah. Um, and they're ask, he's asking the question, why would David call the Messiah, who is his human offspring, his great-great-great-great-grandchild, Lord? Why would David describe his offspring as Lord? The language is tricky for us here because of the translation. In Hebrew, there were several different words that all meant Lord. They all had a unique meaning. We just have one. So it's a little confusing. So we're going to look at what the original words were in the Hebrew. That first line out of, the, out of Psalm 110 that says, The Lord said to my Lord... That seems really strange, doesn't it? Again, David is speaking about the Messiah here. So when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord you see, Lord, just look there in your text, the first Lord you see, that wouldn't read Lord in Hebrew, it would read Yahweh. Yahweh, that's God's covenant name. Everybody understands that's creator, God, who entered a covenant relationship with Israel, okay? The second Lord you see there, in Hebrew, it wouldn't be the word Lord. It would be the word Adonai. And Adonai is another word for Lord that means deity, all right? So David is speaking about the Messiah, and he's using this word Adonai that means God, Okay, and this expression, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. The only one who stood at the right hand of God was another God, was deity. So with these words, he's explaining that Lord means deity. Lord means equality with God. What this suggests here, Jesus is explaining this is a picture of God speaking to the Messiah and they're both deity. David is calling them both Lord. Jesus is interpreting this to teach them something that they have not understood yet. Messiah would be a descendant of David, but he would also be the son of God. That's a big view of Messiah that they haven't really embraced yet. In this moment, Jesus is proclaiming his deity, not just his authority and not just his royalty. He's proclaiming his deity, the fact that he's the son of God. Think back with me when the angel came to Mary in Luke 1 and told her she was with child. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This version of Messiah as deity goes beyond the expectation they had of their Messiah, and some of the people were going to have a really hard time embracing this new idea. But remember, it's Wednesday, and the proof is about to come. Days later, Jesus is going to hang on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. He's going to release his spirit 
He's going to be buried in a tomb, and he is going to be resurrected. And that is the proof that he is a deity. That's the proof that they will need to come to recognize. And just like that soldier who stands at the foot of the cross watching Jesus be recognized, true disciples are going to say, surely this is the Son of God. They're going to have time to recognize it. So Jesus ends this passage with a warning. Beware, don't go there. He shows that these religious leaders are people of hypocrisy. He says they like prominence and they like power and they like position and they like to be recognized. But in their hearts, they're evil and they're greedy. And they're going to lead other people astray. And the judgment that they will experience as a result will be severe. Because the truth is, Jesus is going to present himself as Messiah under his terms and on his time frame. And no matter what the people around him think, they will all be responsible for their response. He's there offering them peace. Just like today, he offers them and us um, rescue from the consequences of sin, a restored relationship with God. But he only offers it to those who accept him under his terms. When we recognize him as the payment for our sin, but then we redefine him and we add to that and we add words that he didn't give us, we turn Jesus into some kind of genie in the bottle and that's actually too small a definition for Messiah. He's not a God who's going to make our dreams come true. He's not our gracious counselor who's going to smile and wink and turn his head when we pursue sin. That's our version. If we make up that version, add to it, we risk becoming temporary disciples just like those people in the crowd. And the trouble with redefining Jesus is he is under no obligation to meet those expectations for us. And when that happens and we've placed our hope in those things, those made-up things, we're at risk of losing all hope and walking away like a temporary disciple. So the alternative is simple. Hang on his every word. You need to know his word to be able to hang on it. Stick by him. Fortunately, we know how the story ends. We know how the Passion Week ends. And we know how the big story ends. We know that we live in this age when Jesus continues through his word to present, to declare himself as Messiah. And God expects us to recognize it. We know that not everybody recognizes him as Messiah. But we know that one day they will. One day they will. I want to take you back to Zechariah 14.4. Listen to this prophetic word. This is talking about Jesus' return. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split in two. That is creation declaring what is obvious. The Mount of Olives will split in two, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half the mountain moving south. In verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Jesus will be declared and he will be known as the Messiah and the Savior on his terms and in his time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good and gracious. And we see your heart toward us all through the scriptures, your desire to live in a restored relationship with us, and your desire to free us from the consequences of sin, Lord. That's my heart's desire for everyone in the room today. I pray that your word will not return void today, but that we'd have ears to hear and eyes to see, we would recognize you as the Messiah exactly as you have declared yourself, Lord. I pray that we would embrace the peace that you offer us and that we would live as examples of peace in a world that's desperate for peace. 
Lord, that your wisdom and your discernment would help us not to add anything to what you've said, but just help us to hang on your every words and for that to be just a beautiful example in the world and to attract others to a relationship with you. I ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, our Messiah, our God, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.